Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Dr. Laura Faulkner. Laura is Head of Research at Rackspace Technology, the company that pioneered managed hosting and that is now the world's largest and leading provider of managed cloud services. At Rackspace, Laura leads the team responsible for helping the organization to make better decisions through qualitative and quantitative research, including large-scale market surveys, product research, and competitive intelligence. Starting out in the early 90s as a technical writer, Laura went on to build extensive experience as a researcher, design lead, and program manager for the University of Texas at Austin's Applied Research Laboratories and Institute for Advanced Technology. After leaving the university, Laura became the director of UX design and research for Pearson Clinical Assessment. She also successfully ran her own UX strategy consultancy for 15 years between 2000 and 2015. Laura has been the International Conference Co-Chair of the User Experience Professional Association, where she won the International User Experience Service Award for fearlessly redesigning and leading the implementation that brought the conference into a new age. She's also the organizer of Hot Topics in UX, Finding Expert Answers, a meetup in Austin, Texas. And she's the author of Beyond the Five User Assumption, which was named the best paper of the year by Human Factors International in 2005. It is still regularly cited today. Laura holds a Bachelor of Science in Anthropology from the University of Houston Clear Lake and a PhD in Experimental Psychology from the University of Texas at Austin. Described by her colleagues and contemporaries as someone who is compassionate, a wonderful advocate for UX research, and tenacious, brilliant, and down-to-earth. I can't wait any longer for today's conversation. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's great to have you here, Laura. And as I mentioned before, when we were chatting off-air, I do tend to do a bit of research for these conversations. And in that research, I discovered something that piqued my curiosity, which was you once wrote a Monte Carlo simulation in MATLAB. <laughs> and for people that don't know what MATLAB is, what is MATLAB and what on earth inspired you to do that with, with it? <laughs> so uh, it was by necessity only. That is not my thing. So programming is not my thing. Uh, even though I have a graduate minor in statistics, that's not really my thing either. I hire professional statisticians <laughs> instead of doing that myself, which is a very wise thing to do if you're not a specialist in that. So what possessed me to do that? Uh, so MATLAB is, for example, I was using it to uh, write a simulation of, of some sort. So you, you can write test programs in that 
Uh, it has a lot of other really great capabilities, but it's more accessible than a lot of just basic, than a lot of programming language kind of situations. And it's often used in, in laboratory work. So I do recommend going out and looking at that fabulous tool. Some of my friends live and work there in user experience for many years. But the, what possessed me to do it was that I was seeking to understand the, uh, really seeking to answer the five user assumption question. So it had gotten out there and in into popular usage, uh, especially when uh, Jakob Nielsen and Rolf, Rolf Molich first uh, published a paper on it, and then Nielsen put it in the usability engineering book. And of course, that book is part of what gave the field a, a defined identity and, and name of what we do, even though a lot of people have been, had been doing it. So this is like kudos to all of my friends out there who, uh, who were part of, of creating it as a profession. But the, the book just elevated its, its, uh, the awareness of the methods in it and, and collated it all in one place. And so, but the problem with that was, is that, uh, and, and the paper explains this, is that, uh, my paper, the Beyond the Five User Assumption, is that it was a quick and dirty measure, which we do a lot in user experience, and we should, because this is, we need quick business answers, we need to move forward quickly, and it's not classical research. It is delivering business value, which is a very different thing from statistical research. But the challenge was, is that people who did understand statistics uh, would look into it and they say, well, even the method used to derive that answer is not a good is not a solid method we can rely on. So I thought, okay, nobody had ever tested it directly from scratch. So I that I was able to find, and so I chose to create a full test from scratch of this. And so I actually, uh, me and a colleague, we built a site that had defined user experience problems in it from glaring problems, which the five users do pick up to moderately difficult to find sort of problems, to very subtle problems, that it would it might take more users to discover those. Uh, just by chance, by accident, you might miss those subtle problems. And sometimes the subtle problems, while they're not the big glaring ones that we can go fix and get quick wins out of, they might be, one of those might be the one that causes a data loss or causes a system to go down. And so, you know, like in high risk situations, like uh, say you're testing something on an airline cockpit, a very subtle problem is often what does cause the, the major accidents. So what I was trying to do was to help answer the question and put it to bed once and for all. Let's put some strong data behind it. And so I tested uh, 60 users, which when people hear that, they're, they go, I can't test 60 users. I said, I know. 60 I users, wow. <laughs> I tested 60, so you wouldn't have to. So I had a defined set of user experience problems. There may have been more built into the, the, the software site that, that we, the application that we did, but at least we knew which ones were built into there intentionally. And then tested 60 users on the whole thing, saw which problems they found, which ones they didn't. But I needed to know some way of, well, what happens in a real lab when I have five people walk in? Well, which five people and what am I going to get and what might I miss? So I had to be able to draw out all of the possible samples of five people. Well, while I was at it, I also wanted to know, well, what if I had random samples of just, let's say at this time I decided to user experience test 10 people. 
And so I, you know, these 10 people signed up for the study and I vetted them and they came in, but I didn't know about the other 55 people and what their experience might've been. So what would happen if I randomly had this group of 10 versus this group of 10? So to test all possibilities from bringing in one user to bringing in all 60 users and every possible combination of every user, that could only be done by automation. It's like that was never going to happen by me manually looking at all 60 pieces of those data and figuring out, well, what if I got these? So the Monte Carlo simulation allowed me to pull every possible sample and to create those loops that would do that. Uh, do I remember how to do that? No. <laughs> uh, sadly, that program was lost to a data loss. It's like we live and learn over 20 years uh, uh, how, to, how, to, how to protect things electronically. But having run that multiple times, having had it checked by multiple folks at the time to see that it was running properly, I was able, that, that's where I was able to identify not what do you get. That, so that, that's the other thing is, is that the original studies were all about what do you get? If you just do five users, yeah, you find a lot of the problems and those are the ones you need to fix. Those are the glaring ones, go fix them. But what I wanted to answer was what might you lose? And so by doing this, what I was able to show were, uh, and, and in the paper, it shows four of the charts, for example, of where, what happened with any set of five or 10 or 15 or 20. And that, lets you decide from, my whole purpose was not to give you the answer. You need to go test this many people. It was to empower every user experience researcher with, what are you willing to risk? What are you willing to let go of? What is your risk tolerance for this particular project? I wanted to give decision support. So that, because researchers are the ones who know, it's like, and so if, if we're running, uh, if, if we have a high risk product and there's something really, really bad that can happen, if something gets missed, something that we didn't even know about, perhaps, then you're going to want to add, you're, you're going to want to test that with some more. And then uh, what I found though also was that a sweet spot and the, um, it, the sweet spot is really somewhere between 10 and 20 where you're going to get, you're, you're going to have a pretty strong idea that you get a good set of the problems and, and you're not going to lose very much. Do, do I do that? And does my team do that? No, most of the time we're testing six because that's the reason we've gotten into. It does, it does do what we need to do. When we have a bigger problem where, where it, there's higher stakes or where, where we're getting a, a lot of different answers from people and we're not really getting to the same answers over and over then you know then we'll do 12 or 15 or if there's a whole lot of dissent if the stakeholders are really arguing that's another reason <laughs> to add a few more if if you can so we don't ever do it to slow down projects but we do it to find those things that that we simply don't want to miss mm. so it sounds like the context of the product and the risk tolerance you need to consider for that product is quite important in determining your decisions decision as to how many users you should be running through those usability tests. 
Absolutely. And so your risk tolerance is based on several, several different factors. So I started doing some of them. Let's see if I can just list some. So one is, is the depth of stakeholder dissent. That's going to be one where, where we do add. And that way we don't have to keep going back and telling the whole story about why six is, is fine and why six is valid. Now, I, there, I do have a way to tell that. If you want to ask me again later, I will, I'll circle back to, uh, definitely to one of the way we talk that I talk about those those six six participants but when there's a lot of dissent if it's not too hard and it's you know and well it's not always very hard for us to add some participants uh we go ahead and add them and if it's going to slow down the timeline we do it in parallel so that we don't hold up anybody's timeline so so one is depth of depth and breadth of stakeholder dissent another is for potential usability problems in there what bad things can happen for the user and if there's things like, if there's a potential that if they miss something, there's a data loss or they make a really wrong, serious decision. So maybe it's a wrong decision about like how much infrastructure they choose. Uh, that's a big one uh, because that, that can change, fixing that can be, involve a lot of contracts and time and effort and all that. And it, and it can involve potential data loss for them. Or if it's like making a mistake on the level of rental car that your insurance company allows you to get, that's not really high stakes. And so we maybe don't, don't need that. So this, the stakes and the potential bad things that can happen for the user, that's, that's really our, our biggest driver. And then some of it is, is simple user research gut instinct. It's like, we think that there's something in here that we're missing or that design is missing, or, you know, we're, we're not even from our expert mind, like Malcolm Gladwell, he says, you know, from the expert mind and Blink, he said, the expert mind can't always say why it knows something. So if there's something like that, it's like, and you have the luxury to add a few and you can test them in parallel so you don't hold up anybody's things, add a few, if it's gonna help you feel more confident in yourself and what you're presenting. So those are some of the factors and reasons why you wanna go ahead and, and add participants. But the, the charts in the, in the paper will really show you, it's like, it'll show you the mess you can get if you, if you miss and how much tighter your results can be uh, when you add some. Statisticians will just say, oh, that's basic user, that's basic statistics stuff. But we're not talking about just basic, basic statistics. We're talking about what matters to the user experience. And so having a few simple decision charts uh, can help make all the difference which one feels comfortable to you and like the right one for that that study so so yeah those are some of the choice factors that you're going to base on base those adding users decisions on and i will definitely be linking through to those charts and to the paper because this is a discussion that believe it or not you published this in 2005 it's now 2021 yes. we are still having as a community it occupies people's um, headspace so so much of it uh, i really would love to help as you said earlier put this to bed once and for all and also just give people like you said a decision support so that they know where to go to refer to uh, to to get some help with determining how many users you need to, to put through your studies yeah which is well, clearly there's, there's no right answer and confident yes <laughs> yes 100 percent you you touched on something else laura that i wanted to ask you about there which was the sort of the when the stakes are quite high and in your introduction i mentioned that you'd worked for the university of texas and i believe the the labs and the the center that you were working with there had some defense 
contracts or some tie to defense. And it seems like the stakes might be quite high in a defense situation. What sorts of UX related projects were you involved with while you were at the University of Texas at Austin? Uh, I'd say that the, so quite a few, but the bulk of the projects there, which were for joint forces. So I, I got to do work. I my great privilege to work with all of the forces in the U.S., uh, in the U.S. Uh, military, as well as the uh, Royal Australian Air Force the, and the Royal Canadian Air Force. It, it was a significant privilege to get to do that and I, for so many years, and I learned so much from that. And so uh, what I can share that, you know, that is common knowledge, if you go look up and, and see how the projects are described, is that the significant amount of work that, uh, that our team worked at, at those times in our division worked were around communications and digital communications. And so it was really uh, about combining multiple communication sources so that you could understand what was, what was happening and, and have situational awareness. And so very common problem. And then I also got to work some some defensive measures that, that were really not so much the defensive measure itself as it was the test simulation platforms. So the test simulation platforms, you need those to be usable as well so that, that all of your systems can be tested for safety and efficacy and, and how well they work. So those were, those were two of the big uh, main things that I got that I had the great privilege to work on. And so in terms of the stakes of those, a lot of times, like in the terms of the simulation ones, we didn't want to miss something. And so it was important to make sure that we shake it all out for, for safety and efficacy. It's like, was it really doing its job? And, and so to make sure that we captured all of those potential use cases or that the, the simulation uh, simulations that got set up for automated testing worked, it's like it needed to be easy for the test developer. And we often drop out the the person who's sitting in the work chair, who's doing the work to do that sort of thing. It's like we, uh, as user experience people, we you know we do work on the front line, and the the person that's that's using it and actually has the final technology in their hand. Uh, I happen to have a particular passion for the enterprise space, for the person who's sitting in the work chair. So enterprise tools of any kind, which is one of the reasons I love working at Rackspace, is that, that this is a big enterprise, it's, it's, you know, it's an enterprise platform. It's not about the end users of the internet. It's about the, the folks who are setting up environments and getting them to work and, and for the hosting to work correctly and for the management of that and the security of all of that to work. And so I just find it a particularly interesting problem set to bless the day, the, the, the eight to nine to 14 hour days that, that people spend in their chairs on complex work tools that go up across whole enterprise problems. And so really defense was no particular mystery that way. It's, it's like anything else. It, it's really helping the folks who are sitting in the work chairs and trying to get something done in very big complex spaces every day. Hundred mm, percent, and it's interesting you say that it's it's like any other enterprise context. And I couldn't help but think, but in defence, and there are some other industries, there is literally life at stake. And you talked about communication and the the role of UX and trying to improve that communication for the people that are in those seats. Yes, I, I wondered how did you think about the, the, the gravity of what it is that you were working on as a, as a UX professional in that context? 
That's a very good question. So how did I think about it? I was keenly aware of it. And it's one of the reasons that I can say that I was privileged to work in that environment because I found that politics aside, folks in the military all across the world are really human beings who wanted, who are about trying to, to create the world to be a safer place. And for all that, that might be talked about at larger levels about that, the individual human beings who came to work every day came to work with that mission in mind. And, uh, and I was very surprised because I'd never, I'd never been exposed to that, to military work before, before then. And to, I, I thought that I was, that it was going to scare me a lot more, you know, a lot. And that I wasn't. Tell me, tell me about that. What, part of what it did you, yeah. yeah. What did you think might scare you about it? Uh, that I was going to go in quite honestly and go into a, with a bunch of warmongers. And, right. and, yeah. and I'm not, it's like, you know, I'm a, rather a peacenik actually. <laughs> and, but, but what I didn't understand was uh, for whatever mission it was, the individual human beings involved had very earnest uh, desire to serve the, the world and to serve humanity in their own ways. And nearly all of them having gotten to do many user interviews over the years, of multiple levels of people all the way across, almost all of them, their very first things out of their mouth when you asked why did they come to work every day? And they talked about safety and deterrence. And that's that's really that was really the driving mission. And so once I left that field and went out into industry, I still really look for people who are committed to a mission of whatever kind it is. And so and it has to be a business that wants to do something more than make money. <laughs> and it has, you know, or, or an organization that wants to do something more. And that's, that's what attracts me. And that's, that's what attracts a lot of user experience people <laughs> is because we have our own personal sense of mission in the world. And so when, when somebody interviews me for a job, it's like, they better tell me a story that's about more than profit and brand. They better tell me something about what it means to them to come to work every day. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important. It just reminds me, I had a conversation last week with Peter Morville very much on this topic and how we can, as user experience professionals, better live up to the idea that we have of making the world a better place and some of the choices that we, we need to make around that and who we choose to work for is definitely one of those things. Mm -hmm. And so it was ultimately the people that it was the mission that initially that frightened me, but it was the people that kept me there. And then, and then some of the, and that there was more positive impact than I anticipated. Yeah. Mm, I, I really like how you described how you were able to hold, hold those two things and it wasn't what you expected when you went into it. You said you're a little bit scared or hesitant that, that it might not play out. I had been curious about the sort of ethical conversation, if that's the right term to use, that mm -hmm. you might have been having in your head uh, as you went into that and then went through that. And I think you really articulated that really powerfully for people that are listening today. Laura, you're head of research at Rackspace now, and I understand that your team's mission statement is to spark fast, confident decisions. I was really curious about that for a couple of reasons. The first of which, which is probably where I'll leave things here because it will turn into a very long question otherwise, is that uh, you run a an agency style uh, research model, an internal agency style research model, as far as I could tell, as in your team 
your researchers aren't embedded in product teams. What can you tell me about the the mission and the way in which you work at Rackspace in research to deliver on that mission? So the how we primarily work, like you, you described it exactly perfectly. We we work primarily as an internal agency. We're not embedded, and there are several reasons for that. It's not that that's like the perfect model, and I'm not a big evangelist for this is how you have to do it in your organization. So to everybody out there who's like saying, whoa, 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 that's not going to work here, <laughs> and, and that's not good, and and embedded in product is better. It's like I have this is for this use case, and this it works for this use case. So we are a very small team. Uh, so it, this lets us, it, the, the model helps us to help more people and to scale more easily and quickly. It also does have the benefit, and there's many ways to get this benefit, but it does have the benefit that we ourselves are never siloed. It's like in some ways, there are things that we know about across the company better than almost anybody else in the company because we work for everybody and we'll answer anything for anybody. Oh, I like that. We work for everybody and we'll answer anything for anybody. <laughs> okay, good. So in that, in terms of us being agency model, so how that works is that one, we we do preserve out a, a significant part of our, uh, our time for ad hoc work. And so because our, our mission is to spark fast, confident decisions, there's not all, somebody doesn't always have a question. And they and they don't always they, they don't always need something to move forward in their decisions. Now, granted, in the product model, you do want to be, and we will we do stay constantly abreast of product development, and we will insert ourselves <laughs> when when, <laughs> when it's time. And so, when a new project is coming up, we will we do have a, a point of contact for that project who semi embeds. So like they're not, they're not there as a full-time person and they're not a full-time asset, which also means that they're also fully utilized. My team is always fully, fully utilized because you don't, and we don't have one person way over tasked and one person way under tasked at any given time because we share this, but to keep things sane and, and to keep us in the loop fully throughout the product process, we do have a, a point of contact for each area in each focus area. And so they know that they can come to that person first and that that person will, will as well as having breadth of knowledge, will also be able to go deep on their product and their thing. So that's, that's how we like work on both of those ends of that. And so we will do full iterative testing uh, throughout uh, from uh, inception and concept uh, through to, uh, to post-release benchmarking as, as well. So, but again, it's like we, we co-assign we, to, to keep other people in the loop so that you don't have a single point of fail. We're, you know, again, we're a small team. And so if we've had somebody like go on medical leave, well, if, because we're not wholly embedded only in the product team and that point of contact is not the only point of contact for that team, somebody else knows about their project that we were able to have the second person come in and seamlessly, reasonably seamlessly pick up the thread and keep things going so we don't ever slow down. So really, I think that, that that's, those are the primary reasons that, that we developed this, which also answer how we do it. The primary reasons were that there were a lot of people out there in pain who could not who don't ha couldn't have a, an embedded researcher on their team. It's like they're not that kind of team, they don't have the resources, uh, but they need help. 
And so we want to be able to say yes and help them. And then second is that we don't want to introduce single points of fail. And so the product team is not ever at risk. So yeah, that's that's how we do that dance, and we and we're able to do it with uh, with a small agile team that uh, that can really turn our hands to anything, which is also how we learned multi methods, and began to apply multi multi methods across the the business to where now we have insight from the smallest UX kind of test of something up to that largest market insight. It's it's a lot of fun for us. <laughs> Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. I was the, the thing I was curious about in your mission statement was this somewhat um, apparent tension between fast decisions being made in the context of an agency model, which can sometimes have constraints on it in terms of the way it in, interacts with the rest of the organization. So it was really great to hear there that it sounds like you can have your cake and eat it too, if you yeah. think really cleverly about how you how you interact with the organization. That's right. And, you know, it, like, it, it sounds all very fancy, but honestly, I, I led this, I, I led the development of this and we, we as a team creatively created this because we were, we, one, we have a servant leadership attitude. And so when somebody needs something, if we can make a difference, we're going to. And then second is because we we're trying to solve real world, world problems that were happening on the ground. It's like holding up schedules or uh, supporting schedules and, and helping them happen, making it easy for stakeholders to consume what we did and what we had and, and being able to be graceful about all of that. Uh, so we're not, we can answer, yes, yes, we're here to help you when you need it, as well as we can keep an eye on, on more strategic questions and be discovering those ourselves so that we have ready answers even before questions are often asked. So yeah, it's, we love it. But we did it because we were solving practical problems on the ground. So anybody can come up with a great model for your organization by being creative about solving problems on the ground. If you didn't have the constraints of, you know, time and budget and, and, and being able to find the right people, what, if anything, would you change about the current model that you've set up? Oh, that's a really good question. So let me pause and think about that. I think we would do, we would do every single one of our microprocesses on every project, developing this concept of microprocesses. So a microprocess would be like an intake process. A lot of people have those again, no big mystery behind any of this. It's just, it helps me to think about it, to put words and terms on it. Like Brene Brown, does. she put, she gives names to things. And so if you think about this intake process, even though it's something we do very simply and lightly, it's like, it's a 20 minute conversation. We have some questions we answer for ourselves in some ways we document it, but we don't let the process drive us. Yeah, yeah. And when you talk about intake, Laura, from my interpretation from the research I did for today, it's it's a stakeholder conversation about what, yes. what it is that you're there to do for them. Correct. It, it's correct. But it's not just what we're here to do for them. It's like, what are they accountable for doing for the business? And so we, that's part of what we want to do because they often know what they want to ask of us. It's not, Sometimes it's not the right thing. And it's not really going to serve them. So we need to get them to the larger conversation. And also we're co-business people with them. We have a stake in this business too. And so we want to know what is the business value that you're going to deliver if we answer this question for you. And that helps us ask the right questions and often get a whole lot more out of a study than they imagined. And that even we imagined if we'd just gone in to answer 
their question that was on the surface. So we have this question that really takes them to larger conversations around their business goals, uh, the business problems they're trying to solve, what drove this in the first place? Who's asking them to do this? this is, you know, like, like which part of the business? Is it, is it the operational part of the business? And are they trying to solve for cost and efficiency? Or is it, you know, is it the marketing side of the business and they're trying to solve for attention and, uh, and, and message? And, and, and what are we trying, what, what good things will happen for the business if we get that? So, so that's, we're taking them to that, but then we're also discovering what are their constraints? What are their risks? If we don't ask them their constraints, we'll often give them some airy fairy answer to something that is never going to be doable. Uh, like even from a design perspective, if, if we know what their required tooling is or that they have legacy that they have to fit into, it's like, of course, we want to give them the ideal user experience answer and we'll get that. But for giving them something real that they can act on tomorrow, we also need to know who's going to tell them no and why. So we're going to ask about constraints and then we're going to ask about what are the bad things that can happen? What are the risks? And how can we help mitigate those? So, so under the covers in our intake conversation, there, there is actually a classical risk mitigation method. And we're asking them what bad things can happen, how likely are those to happen, what, what is the impact of that? So, so what, what results will, you know, cascading bad things will happen if that risk gets through our, our net? And then what can we do to mitigate that? What can we do to, you know, if, if the bad thing does happen, how are we going to fix it? And, and to think through that, it's really just classical risk mitigation planning and risk, risk management planning. And we've just put that in a conversational form. But that often helps us find things, too, that we and to ask questions of the users that we wouldn't have thought to ask before. And then we ask schedule and timeline. And then we also ask, what do we got on the spaceship that's good? It's like, have we already done some of this research? Has, has somebody already solved this with a design that, that nobody, that the engineers didn't act on yet? So a lot of times somebody will ask us, like just recently, had somebody come in and say, I need somebody to design a dashboard so that our customers can do this. It's like, uh, did you know that there's already a dashboard? <laughs> it's like, like, so to take the stakeholder back into that dashboard conversation and say, well, here, look at this. Does this answer your question? Uh, yes, it does in this part, but no, not this. Okay, wait, then we just need to add something to the dashboard. Or, oh, you need a dashboard like that before this other product. Okay, so now we know this, this scope and we're not duplicating work. So that's what that, and it's like, it, it's a very complex thing under the covers, but it's very simple on the top. Oh, that gets me back to my favorite user experience quote of all time. And I learned it like seven days into my 25 year career. And uh, the, the quote is, it is a simple matter to make things complex. It is a complex matter to make things simple. And the source of the quote is uh, a gentleman named Arthur Block, who was early in user experience, but then he pivoted to, uh, I think the legal field or something. So you won't find his name anywhere, except where I've quoted this quote. But I did have the, some original materials from someone who knew him and captured that quote. So, uh, so anyway, it's my favorite. It's still valid today. And it helps me remember that when it's hard to do user experience design or user experience research, that's okay. It's supposed to be hard because it is hard to make things something simple.
It's like, that's why we have a job. It's why we have a profession. It's why we put this effort into it. So we're all about like doing that hard work and that head work. And then also I'm at this point in my life and my career, I'm about how do we make the practice of it easier and simpler so that we can actually do it. Yeah. Mm. And it sounds like what you were describing there is that you have created a a process that you can repeat and that you've refined over time to have those conversations with stakeholders. And it almost sounded like the conversation you might have with a doctor where they're trying to diagnose, well, what's the real problem here? You know, it's, it's actually a a form of research in and of itself. And it's almost like if we're not having these conversations and we're not putting the effort into structuring them in a way we can have them repeatedly and reliably, they were actually in danger of, of UX research malpractice. Like we're doing ourselves and our organization a big disservice by not having structure around this conversation. Oh, what a fantastic way to put that. I'm going to quote you on that. That is awesome. <laughs> it's like UX research malpractice. Yes, because if we don't know these things coming up front, then here's the bad things that can happen. So we'll do our own risk analysis here. Is that So some of the bad things that can happen is that one, we'll answer the wrong question. So even, God, who out there has not had this experience? Okay, all you UX researchers out there, you can raise your hands on this one. The stakeholders come in, they ask, they say, we need to know this or that. Is it A or B? And so you go and answer A or B for them, and you've done exactly what they asked. And then they said, well, that doesn't help us. It's like, but I did what you asked. It's like, <laughs> well, so the question is, did we ask the right people? Maybe there was some subtlety in the question that, that they were asking, and they thought that they were telling you enough to, about who to test it with, and you thought you knew enough, but you really didn't, we, did, we really didn't understand what was the question behind their question. And, and so they think they know what question they want to answer, but maybe they don't because that's not their their job. It's like a designer job. You get the design out and to solve these problems you're trying to solve. Engineers problems to do this, business problems to do that. It's like, but maybe they don't, they didn't even understand what their own real question was until you brought them the data. But then guess who gets blamed? The researcher gets blamed for doing it wrong and doing it badly, but we did everything right. And so that's one thing that can happen is that we ask, we, we didn't ask the right question. We didn't ask the right people that there was really something else that that stakeholder was trying to get at. And so what's underneath that or really their boss is pressuring them about something and they didn't, it's like, they're just trying to help their boss like back off or they're trying to show success in some ways. And so in all of that, if we've taken the time to discover that, then we can do the best we can to help them be successful that ultimately helps the user be successful. And so that's, that's, that's how, yeah, that's how this all came about is, is trying to solve that and to, to solve those pain points, both for researchers and our stakeholders. So yeah, so putting some discipline behind that, let us do that. And I love, I love to say this, it's like disciplined process held lightly. Because we've had people ask us, do I have, can't I just fill out a form? Do I have to have a meeting with you? Yes, you do. Because as researchers, we know that part of our magic is that follow-up question. And, and if you make your stakeholders fill out a form, then they think that they know how to answer it. <laughs> but maybe they don't. And 
but also it can it can look like a barrier when you have a forum between you and your stakeholders. It can look like that's a, a firewall. And so I have to answer all of these questions about risks and constraints and previous work done. So we actually hide that complexity from them in the conversation. And so that's that's part of why we 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 hold that process lightly. And we don't we don't imagine we need to answer all of those questions for us, even in that 20 minute conversation. It's like we don't we're we're not holding to we have to fill out this form. We are using this as a framework to help us have the conversation in a semi-repeatable way. To because we not because we need to fill out our form and get all this answered. No, it's because we need to discover this so that we can keep bad things from happening in the future. I don't always have to know the constraints and the risks. I don't even have to always know the timeline. Typically, I do need to know what business problem you're trying to solve and who are your who are your stakeholders that you're reporting to that you're accountable to? Who's your boss? <laughs> and, and Yeah, that's such an important to, one to know, isn't it? Yeah, who's asking you to do this? So once I know those things, if, if I don't get anything else and I can get those two things, then we're still mitigating a lot of risk about the research plan going off the rails or the research report or how we analyze it or who we talk to. Uh, yeah, it just really helps us stay focused and get a whole lot more meaning out of the sessions. I just, oh my gosh, I love just getting a whole lot of meaning out of sessions. Yeah. There's clearly a role for reducing risk that the conversations play like it really helps you to like you say identify what the constraints are and also some of the political risks that may be at play what's really driving them you know try and get to the bottom of things but there are also some softer benefits it seems like that you gather by being a researcher and engaging stakeholders in this way what have you found in in your 25 year career in ux has been the main benefit of having conversations like these with people that are in other disciplines? Oh, so the, yeah, that's a great question. And it really is the easiest one is that it does a couple of things. One, it, it does build relationship. It does build rapport. Um, even when the questions are really hard and, and put them in un uncomfortable questions. One of my favorite product partners of all time who, yeah, I mean, he came to us faithfully Laura, can we have that, you know, that conversation that makes product managers cry? <laughs> because he knew, <laughs> he knew what he was walking into. He knew I was going to make him cry because I'm going to ask the hard questions about like, well, what is, okay, yeah, I know you need this question, but what is the business problem you're trying to solve? What is the business value this will deliver? And sometimes he, he realized that he was asking something that was, that was not going to help him deliver the business value or that somebody had asked him to do something that didn't even make sense. So sometimes in this conversation, it would empower the product manager to be able to go back to their stakeholders and say, uh, this is probably not even a good user experience direction to go. It's like, I just had this conversation and that's not gonna deliver the business value we're trying to get. So, uh, so yeah, the, the conversation that makes product managers cry. So one is that, it does hold their feet to the fire on it and it hooks our work and their work to the value or the big value that you're trying to get overall. It's like, even if it's this, we need this button, like, like we need this buy now button. Well, what are you trying to get with that buy now button? It's so, so when we pushed on that and, and asked what was underneath that, it's like, what is, you know, what is the ultimate business result 
or what is the bad thing that that's going to fix, that that's going to resolve, you know, from a bigger perspective, not just, oh, well, we want it to be simple for users. Well, yeah, but what is that going to get you? And what is that going to get them? Then we had a real conversation. We could have a real study and get meaningful information out of it. So that's one thing is that it, it ties to the larger conversations and it makes your work more relevant. It's like, you're not just reporting on this. You're reporting like this. You're reporting on this. Even if it's, you're testing this button, guess what else you get to learn? Uh, so, so there's that piece. But then there's that other piece you, you talked about the soft benefit, which is, is that it is re relationship building. It is rapport building, even when it's hard, because like this product manager did, he knew that a few minutes into that first one and definitely two minutes into the second one like this that we had is that we're for him. We're on his side. We want him to, we want him to be successful with his boss as well as to serve our user population. So we're very passionate about our, inter our internal users, the in users of our information, which our mission is about spark fast, confident decisions. Uh, it's like, yes, we're part of the larger mission of making things better and helping users breathe easier. Of course, that's, that's just who and what we are. But as a research team, it's like, who do we serve and how can we help them? And how can we help them with that thing? ultimately for the user. And, but it also showed us as experts. So that's the other piece. It's like experts and co-business people. It's like the fact that we are asking conversations from a, from a larger perspective and helping it put in context of, of the larger thing, it builds our street cred as well, because we're not just order takers who are making burgers the way you want them to. 100%. Yeah, that was exactly the, the phrase that I was thinking of. And experts ask more questions and they give answers for quite often as well. Oh, and it sounds like what you're, yeah, what, what you're saying is the sort of difference in maturity that you, you, you reach as a research practitioner or as a practice where you go from doing things right to doing the right things yes, and doing both of them. And yeah, it's really clearly articulated in the way that you're interacting with your other stakeholders. Yeah. And you mentioned business problems and also business goals. And I wanted to ask you about those as well, uh, particularly in the context of planning research. And this might sound like a loaded question because it is, but goals are kind <laughs> of important. Goals are kind of important, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. Um, so we, um, in our research plans, we, we require ourselves. So the, the, the intake conversation flows naturally into and begins populating a, re a research plan template. Now, again, we don't let the templates drive us. It's like there, there are things for us to wield and to use and that facilitate us. Uh, and organize our uh, what we pull and take in. And any good researcher out there is gonna know what a basic template looks like. If you're an expert, you don't even need to go look up the template. I can write that out of, I can write the template, a templated plan out of my head. It's like, and I can do a templated intake conversation out of my head because I've been doing it so long. And so you uh, practitioners out there, don't let process drive you. You want to to use it and wield it to advantage. Uh, but when you become an expert, you don't really have to go back and, and my dissertation research even proved that, that when user experience researchers use very rigid tools and tooling and templates and, and that sort of thing, it can slow you down and, and actually miss some of your own expertise. So yeah, you use, you use it and, and as one of your many magic box tools. So in that business, getting back to business goals and answering a question about that. We require ourselves 
to document the business goal. And we document to the very first thing in the plan. It's not the first thing we write, but it is, it is the first thing that is in the documented plan, even if we never look at the plan again. The discipline of taking ourselves from our objectives and our research questions. It's like, okay, here's the things that we want to get answers to, not the questions we ask, but the objectives and questions that we want to answer for ourselves as researchers, as designers, as engineers, as business. It is this big section in the document, which is three sections down, right, or two or three sections down. And that's, that's all of the kitchen sink questions that we hope to get answered in the study. But then we record, before we do anything else in that research plan, we take ourselves back up to what are the business goals. So this is where we've asked in, this, in the intake conversation, what did you, uh, like, what is the business problem you're trying to solve? And so let's, let's go back to that buy now question. So there's a you know, big complex product and they wanna make it, one, they wanna make it easy for users. And then also they want to make it easy and efficient for the business, because if you can't just go put in your order and you have to go talk to somebody every time, then that's expensive and complex for the business as well. And then also mistakes can happen if you don't have like a defined inputs and, and all of that sort of thing. So there's a lot of, lot of great reasons to do this. But if we think about what are the real business goals, why are, why do we even want to do this? Like, we get customers right now. Why do we need, need this buy now button? And when we get to that, the business goal is to, one, make us accessible and friendly to, to buy from. So that that's a good reason because you want to attract business and not put up barriers. So you don't want to, to distance the buyer from getting what they want and need when they know what they want and need. And so that's, that's a really good reason. But why are we doing that from a business perspective? It's like, oh, we want to invite more revenue. It's like, that's that. So yes, like invite revenue. Great. Okay. So when we hook into that, imagine how much more important our research becomes about that buy now button and who that applies to and why it's like, so, uh, and then from a business perspective, we don't want to spend a lot of time on repeated purchases and things that are very easy and defined. We want to be able to, to spend uh, like support time on the rib complex purchases that do need help and do need a conversation to get there. So, but what was imagined initially was that every customer for every product needed a buy now button. Turns out that wasn't true because putting a buy now button then became a barrier for the big, if you put it on the big products, they can't get what they need because they must have a conversation and multiple conversations and a kind of support that lets them make the correct choice. It's like, that was the thing that we found out is that we had these enterprise users who coming to us and saying, I need your help. I need decision support that's not based on some decision tree that you thought about and pushed me through an interface. I need your intelligent input on that. And then you have the the kinds of users so that, okay, wait, I already know what I need and this is a really simple one or I've bought this before over and over, so just let me go get it. So what we found out is it wasn't a yes or no answer and put a button, slap a button on every page. It was, it let us deliver a more finessed answer that actually delivered the goals of easier, greater revenue that required less input and had less friction because we were doing it for the right products and the right customer. 
So if we had not asked the question about why do you want to buy now button and what are the business goals and gotten to that, those revenue and those ease of doing business with questions, we would have been doing it for the wrong people at the wrong time. And we wouldn't have learned so much about our customers. No, that's a really important point. Yeah. Something that I hear from researchers that they're frustrated about almost more often than not is when it comes to presenting their findings. So say you've had your intake conversation, you've gone and done the work and you've come back to your stakeholders to show them what it is that you've learned and help them to make that decision. Sometimes the stakeholders listen, but they don't take action. What are some of the common reasons for that? Very, very good question. It's one of my other like significant areas of passion. So that front end conversation and that last getting, you know, delivering something that's going to make a difference because that's what we're here to do. We're here to, to, to have influence. And so some of the reasons that they don't is are embedded in that that intake conversation. They, you know, it is about reasons that stakeholders don't don't take your advices because you didn't answer the right question. Not because it wasn't the, what they asked, but because we didn't discover what the bigger question was. But a lot of times, so there's, like I said, there's a lot embedded in, in that conversation and that it really wasn't the, it, it wasn't the right direction. But the bigger piece of it is that we often present things in the wrong order. So a stakeholder comes in and they have, they need to know what can I act on? What's the bottom line? But as researchers, we want to show them our beautiful work. And so we want to take them chronologically through our beautiful work and the way that our research plan is set up. We want to say, you had this question. Okay, great. Yes, you had this question. So now the first thing they want to know in the first five minutes is, what's the answer? It's like, tell me the answer. <laughs> but no, 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 we're going to make you wait. No, 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 we can't tell you the answer yet. We're going to tell you first. So... We did a qualitative study and it was a think aloud walkthrough and we did it with these participants with, that had these demographics and we tested six people and we did all of this sort of thing. Oh no, make it stop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like already you're in pain, right? And it's like they're just being like, what's the answer? What's the answer? Because that's <laughs> what's all. in it for me? Exactly. That's <laughs> our world. That is not their world. They don't care. It's like, do we need to have and document that information? Yes. But you put that at the end of the presentation. So at the front, then, okay, you could say, okay, well, we'll just jump straight to the findings. So then what if now, now imagine that we're a little more advanced, a little more in our, further in our career. And I will tell you, the reason I know this is because this is exactly how I did it, because it's how I learned it. And it's because I experienced the pain of that. It's it's like you got them to, down the wrong paths and they're just, they're anxious. It's like, they're just trying to find the answer and they need to know what to act on. They can't act on how many participants. It's like, they just can't and what the method was, they don't care. So, uh, so then the next thing, there's your next level of maturity. Okay, so we went to this page and then they had trouble with this button and they did this and they fussed about this and they and they did this, it's like still, it's like, okay, what do I do? And so still, it's like we're a step closer to the promised land there, but we're still not really, we haven't begun the conversation in the stakeholder's world. So now let's think about what's the stakeholder's world. 
they need to know what do I need to go do immediately. And they stakeholders do not just want data. This is the real world. They want recommendations for action. Even if they don't take them, it's like, tell them what you think. Give them your opinion about what actions they should take immediately. So on that buy now example, for example, we have this buy now button in here that we've put in there. If I go in and tell them that I tested 25 people because I had a whole lot of different dem demographics, so I wanted five for each, so I did. And, and I did this kind of test and that sort of thing. They just need to know, like, what do I need to, how come my buy now button is failing? So I'm going to tell them how to fix it. It's like, okay, you need to implement buy now in this and this product, and you need to delete it in that one. And then now here's the decision points that you need to make. And these top three things, if you go do these top three things first, it's going to have the biggest impact on success. You're going to have more click-throughs and more conversions if you go do these three things. Oh, and by the way, now, next slide, is here are the findings that supported that. It's like they um, they abandoned halfway through this part. So if you were to make this part easier and change this there and explain that, put a label on that, then you're not gonna get abandons there. Or they didn't see the button in the first place. And so they didn't go to it because it was in the wrong place or whatever. Or they had a question that you needed to answer before they were willing to click on it. So here's your, that's the data that supported it. So give your opinion. What we do on our opinion is we say research point of view, and then we let that go. We don't care whether the stakeholder actually does the action we recommended. We're just trying to help make things faster for them. They can take that or leave that, but it gets them thinking about action. And it tells them our professional business point of view based on the data. Here's how we interpreted the data and what we would do about it if we were in your shoes. Now we understand that you're the one on the hook for this. You go make your decision. Now, if you don't take our stuff, here is the data. So here's what we predict would happen if you don't do what we recommended. So you don't have to, and that's great. But here's the data, here's the bad things that could happen. So you wanna be prepared that these bad things might happen if you don't take the recommendations. And oh, you wanna know how we exactly knew that finding that users were having trouble on this. Well, here's what actually happened. Here's what we observed. They went to this, they jumped over here, they didn't do this, they had a question about that, they got frightened at this point. And so that's then when we get into the detailed data. But now imagine, it's the day after the meeting. They were just in our presentation and they're going to their team. They don't wanna go find page 16 in our report to be able to tell their team, <laughs> here's what we need to fix. It's like, put it up, make it easy for them. Uh, user experience design over research report. Make it easy for them to find the answers. And so you put you put the, your recommendations for top three fixes, top five, we use three to five fixes up front. Uh, so here's the, here's the ones that will make the biggest difference for you. Or here's the critical one you absolutely have to do because it's just going to fail. <laughs> that's, that's the source of your problem. And then, oh, if, if somebody pushes back on you, Here's the data that supported that. And then they can drill down on the detail. And then you put your participant stuff at the end and your method stuff. If they are increasingly questioning, well, I don't believe it. And who did you test? And how did you do that? Okay, we'll be transparent. Here it all is up front. But that's not the first thing most, people, most stakeholders ask. <laughs> Got it. So what you need to do and why we think you need to do it 
and then everything else. Yes, that, that's it. Yeah. Now, it's interesting. You said there that research should have a point of view, a perspective, an opinion, a recommendation <laughs> in there. And ultimately, it's the stakeholder's decision as to what, what they choose to do with that. But that also sounds a little bit scary from a researcher's point yeah. of view. Because if you give your recommendation and then it turns out not to have played out how you thought, what are the consequences of that and how do you manage those if you've had experience with that in the past? <laughs> have I had experience with that? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so one is this is another way that you that you make yourself attractive and, and accountable. It's like you have suddenly put yourself in the scary position that the stakeholder is in for being responsible for the outcome. So yes, you you are taking a risk and you might be wrong. It's gonna it's gonna put your own feet to the fire for do I believe my own data? Do I believe the data that, that that I got and what I recommend? And you might not always have a fix for it. Maybe you don't have have a particular point of view, but we often do because we're we're UX people as well as researchers. You know, there there's that piece. But here's the other piece, and this is I, I like to call this how to have a point point of view without having an opinion is that we let go of, of yes, whether the decision that, that the stakeholder has to make. What we have found through, and what I have found through hard experience of failure, is that there is often a very good reason why a stakeholder is pushing back. It's like we go and we get, you know, we get hurt by that when our work is pushed aside and not taken and, or somebody pushes back really hard or they tell us we're just downright wrong. And that, yes, that is hurtful, but the more emotional somebody pushes, is about that pushback, the more likely there is some big business thing that they didn't even think to tell you. Something scary that could happen for them that they're accountable for or some constraint that they didn't even realize or, or think to tell you about. Typically, I find that, that most human beings have positive intent and there is some big thing back there that's pushing on that. And that can change the whole solution, not just the conversation, but the solution. So I want to give them the respect of, of being professionals in their own right, because I want them to respect me in the same way. I got to do it first. So that's, that's the first part of it. And then the second part is here's how you mitigate for yourself the pain of somebody having said, no, I don't believe you. I think you're wrong. You take your results back and you put them in your archive and you hold them lightly and politely. And you wait and you see, did the bad thing happen? If the bad thing happened, then guess what you get to be? You are Superman who comes in to save the day because you already have the answer. You already know why it went wrong. So there was a huge project that, that I was on, a big national project. And there was a, uh, there was, we, we found this as a catastrophic problem. You're gonna lose click-throughs. You wanted to improve click-throughs by 30% you're gonna lose because this is a usability problem right here, This the way that this is designed. And they rushed it to market and they said, well, we'll just find out about it out, out then. Well, then they very confidently checked their numbers 60 days later. They didn't, not only didn't get the result of plus 30% click-throughs, they deprecated 30%. They had 30% less click-throughs. And so they were trying to diagnose what's wrong. Did, is there something wrong with the programming and all this? Somebody said, well, we should ask research. Did they find something? Yes, we did. So we came in and politely said, yes, here's the data. Here was the thing. Try fixing that. It's a simple fix. And 
let's see what happens. And not only did we fix the 30% bad, but we got the 30% that they wanted. So because we were willing to hold that, to give them, them the courtesy of making the decision because they had other business pressures, having the data and presenting it back politely to them at the end, they were able to take it and it fixed the problem. So you never know when something that somebody said no to can have a positive impact in the future. But what was more important in that case was preserving the relationship because that gives you. So you didn't, you don't go in there and, and say, I told you so then I guess that doesn't sound like the right way to do it. No, no, not by any means because they were making the best decision they knew how at that time, based on the pressures that they were experiencing, got to give them that, that benefit of the doubt. They weren't just being mean to you. So most of the time that is the case. So give them a break. They're hurting and they're experiencing a consequence. So what can you do to help them out at that moment? It's a new ball game today. What can you do to help them out in that game? Give them the data. Tell them what you think. Yeah. Mm. You talked about the very human aspect of, of what the stakeholder might be going through there. And I want to take that thread and talk about us as people in UX and product now. You know, we're often quite a passionate bunch. We care deeply about the work that we do. We care about the outcomes for the user. And we also care about the business. But we're also people, right? We're, we're emotional. We like to, to do our best. But things in the business world aren't always entirely supportive of the ideals that we might hold for our chosen profession. You know, there are often uh, competing agendas. There are conflicting priorities. There are people that you just don't get on with. What approach or mindset have you held, Laura, that's helped you to navigate the complexities of the, the business environment and being a UXer? That's a very good question. So first, so I do acknowledge that, yes, I am a human being and an, and, and an emotional being and a emotional biological being. And by nature, if I feel physically, mentally, emotionally threatened in some way, my brain is going to go on high alert and I'm going to have a response to that. And I do want my work to matter. Yes, I am extremely passionate about it. So the first thing is to recognize that there is nothing wrong with my internal response, reaction to something that that is just a fact. Okay. This happened. I reacted. Okay. So now I ask myself, what's informing that reaction? What am I telling myself about it? Am I telling myself that I, I screwed up? They're mean, they're bad, life's not fair, the system is wrong, the pro our processes are set up wrong, whatever it is. But I might get into to blaming around all of that, but that doesn't really help me. It's okay to like, I, I, I give myself a little bit to just fuss to myself about it, or maybe fuss to a colleague about it. Uh, but first I just acknowledge, okay, this happened and I feel upset. I feel angry. I feel sad. I, and then I believe that I'm being disrespected or I believe that, you know, that they're bad or that they're wrong or whatever that is. So, so there is that in that moment. I take a breath in that moment. Ideally, I don't always do this, but when I do it well, I gracefully, you know, that's step one. And then step two is be curious. And this is the single biggest answer to everything. Why did they respond this way? Why did they say no? What's behind that? I mean, that is the biggest medication bottle for everything bad that happens in user experience is what if I just ask the question about what is that about? 
Like, what are you worried about? What's the concern? Or even be curious about like, what, why, why would they have reacted that way? Is there something about the, how I presented this? Is there something about this or that? So we had one recently that, that happened like that, where we had to get curious and we actually did a formal root cause analysis because it was such a big one. And somebody very important had said, that's just bad data. We can't trust anything you do. I mean, that was, you can imagine how horrifying that is for researchers that, that like undermines everything that, that we do. So we, we got curious one about our own data and our own methods. So we went back and looked, it's like, okay, what, what delivered this result that they pushed back on? But then we also got curious about, about them and come to find out they had just taken a very big gamble on a, a product direction. And they were really worried about the success of it. And our data told them that customers were asking for something else. And so it was a terribly frightening thing and they were extremely exposed. And so us presenting that in a big forum, even though it was innocent and we didn't know about the, you know, what was happening there that they were getting ready to take this big gamble. Uh, it was very exposing for them, for our data to say something opposite. And so when we were curious about that and we went back and discovered, okay, why did customers say this instead of that? Is that really a bad direction, a bad thing? No, it wasn't. It was actually a good thing that they were going this direction because they anticipated something that customers didn't. And so what that told us then for informed action is it told us, okay, for that product direction, they're going to have to educate customers to bring them up to understand the problem. And so it turned out to be a really beautiful thing, but it was, it was horrifying in the, in the time, but we were able to solve it because we're curious both about us, about our data and about them. And so, yeah. And how did you take that conversation forward with them after they shocked you with this allegation that your data was terrible and you couldn't be trusted? What did you do next with them? So that's, that's where you take it to, to that next level of, Wow, we get, first of all, we get why you were so upset. It's like, because we were curious, we took the time to discover what was going on. It's like, dang, we would have been too, no wonder. So that's, that's first part is, is acknowledge them as human beings. My goodness. It's like, imagine they went home and fussed to, to the people in their house that night because these people said that this was totally wrong and we're, <laughs> we're doing this. And they're bad. And were you having were you having that conversation with that person one on one after that sort of sort of public um, that's public uh, lashing that you received? Yes, thank you for for bringing out that subtlety. Is that that yes, when you've had a big thing a big thing like that happen, you do want to take it to them personally. So of course it was it was going back, and we actually and I personally even spent some time over the next weeks following that to reestablish safe relationships with them in other ways. Uh, when I saw a good presentation about something that they did, wow, er, wow, so-and-so, that was, that was great. Wow, whoever, this, th this, this was really good. I really appreciated that. Thank you for describing. And then also going to them with questions. It's like, I, I realize I don't, I don't think I fully understand this part of the product direction. What, what, what does this thing mean? What does that thing mean? So treating, really giving those people the respect as an expert and, and going back to them, back to them as educate me, tell me more. Uh, because that, that again established that I, I respect them as professionals, as co-professionals and, and as human beings. 
and then uh, connecting over over small things. It's like find you know like finding those common interests, just like you do when you first begin establishing rapport with somebody. It's like you connect over the human things as well, and leaving the controversial question alone, just leaving it alone for a little while while we did our due diligence for what did the data really mean and what did that mean for the, that product direction, now that we understand why, why, why you were upset. And then finally, yes, you take the answer back to the individual first before you take it public, because then it, it, otherwise it's just gonna look like you're trying to defend yourself and make them, look, make them wrong. And that's not gonna help anybody either. It's, uh, yeah, you might win for a moment, but you'll lose for a lifetime. Mm. Such an important point. There seem to be endless books, blog posts, and yes, podcasts like the one that people are listening to now. And sometimes it feels in the field that we're drinking from a fire hydrant of information and what we should do and how we should do it. In your 25 years of experience, what have you found that is absolutely vital to get right in the practice of UX and UX research? Mm-hmm. And what, if anything, can we just leave behind and not be worried about? Oh, dang, that's a really good question. I have to pause to think about that. So first and foremost, to take, to keep, to not let go is what does, what does your gut tell you? Our expert minds are being trained over and over again by experience. The very nature of our daily practice is a daily experiment and collecting data. And from that, we develop our expert minds. And so the most important things to do are, one, you develop your gut by doing it over and over and learning from your successes and mistakes. What worked, what didn't, what worked, what didn't, what worked, what didn't. And that over and over thing really begins to train the expert mind. So you go back and you you look at, at Malcolm Gladwell's blink and he will tell you that this is how those expert, like those expert medical diagnosticians, it's like trailing back to that. It's like that came after experience over and over again of success, failure, success, failure, success, failure. I got it right. I got it wrong. I got it right. I got it wrong. And in our case, it's this made a difference. This didn't, this made a difference. This didn't, this was listened to. This wasn't. And so those things over and over again, that's really how I've developed my entire practice. The documented micro processes that like the intake or the plan and various other things that I've written or am writing that all came from from that, those small experiments, small experiments in, in all of those things. So that that's the part you don't ever want to give up is the daily willingness to keep going out there and doing what you do and succeeding and failing, succeeding and failing, because you will learn over time. Ex, you know, excitement and pain are both very good teachers. And so, so yeah, that, that's the thing you don't ever want to leave behind is, is just the experience of your own practice. And then uh, what to not worry about is getting it exactly right. It's like, it, it always shocks me when I present a new, a defined process or concept or something and somebody asks me, well, how do I do that? Give me the steps, the, the, the detailed steps of that. And it's not really about the detailed steps. I'm happy to document those and, and do that. But it's really about 
what is the larger reason that we need to do steps of any kind? It's not about the specific things to do right. So that's the thing to let go of. There is no one way to do, one, to do the whole practice right. Do you have to be in it every single step and should you be in every time? We would love to, and we, we know we can make a difference on that, but does that mean it's gonna fail if we're not? Not necessarily. There's a lot of smart people out there. There's a reason that you don't necessarily need to be in at every step. Do Is it better overall? Sure, can we do slightly higher quality? But, but that's the thing to let go of. It's like one, there's no one way to do the whole practice right. And then there's no one way to do a particular practice or process right. So five users, 10 users, 15, no, no there's not a right answer. There are answers that tend to work better than some, than some answers and some approaches. There are processes that tend to give success better and faster than some other processes. But you don't want to let any one approach or answer drive how you do things in ways that work. That's what to let. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, be be curious and hold things lightly. You know, don't let the perfect get in the way of of good. Yes, I hope that takes a weight off uh, people's shoulders who are listening or watching. Yes, Laura, this has been such a fantastic conversation. You've given us lots of practical insights and plenty of things to think about and to apply back in our practice. Thank you for so generously sharing those with us today. You are so welcome. It is my pleasure indeed, and thank you for what you're doing out there, uh, uh, getting this getting this kind of thing out to people in the world. It, it matters. And it's part of what our profession is about is that we, we boost each other up. 100%. And you're most welcome. It's a, lot, it's a lot of fun doing these interviews. I really enjoy it. Wonderful. Laura, we'll definitely link to your profiles and, and where people can find you in the show notes. So keep an eye out for those there, people. And to you people that have tuned in, it's been great having you here. We'll put everything, as I've mentioned, in the show notes, including where you can find Laura, plus all of the resources that we've touched on. If you've enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave us a review or a comment on YouTube or interaction of any kind. We'd love to hear from you and subscribe as well. That would be really, really great. And until next time, keep being brave.